You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a people pleaser? There are always telltale signs. A low self-esteem. They find it hard to say no. And they apologize even when they aren't the ones to blame. Now on the surface, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem so bad. What's, what's wrong with being nice to people or making others happy? But we know that ultimately the person that they try to please is themselves, the person standing in the mirror. And in our, in our passage today, Paul wants to steer the Christian away from this sinful narcissism and obsession with self. Saints saved by God's grace are to please God, not please man and not themselves. The Christian is not to be a people pleaser, but a God pleaser. And my hope and prayer is that in our time today, in God's word, it will, it will equip you and encourage you and exhort you to be a God pleaser today and for the rest of your life. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 to 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12. And let me read it for us. This is the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we're going to see three essential elements that characterize God-pleasers, people who live their lives in a way that pleases God. We're going to see that they proclaim the gospel confidently, 
They love God's family selflessly and they walk in holiness expectantly. So we'll start with the first point. They proclaim the gospel confidently. Now, what have, we, what have we seen so far in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? It was about a couple months ago. So what we've seen is that Paul is writing to this young church to, to reorient their way of life in light of Christ's return. Their waiting for Christ's return is not passive, but it is active. Because Christ is returning, Christians are called to actively strive for holiness. Holiness in terms of being set apart, being distinct from the rest of the world as the people of God, but also holiness as wholehearted devotion to God. And as we saw last time, as they wait, they are to engage in life-transforming discipleship, helping others to follow Jesus as Paul had done with them. And all the while, they are to have confidence in their risen, reigning, and returning Savior. And in the section just before, Paul thanks God that he has already seen evidence of this in their lives. They had received the gospel with hearts softened by the Spirit, with the Spirit's joy amidst their own affliction. And he had seen them turn, turn from their pagan ways and turn to serve God. He saw their faith and love lead to sacrificial works for one another. He saw the steadfastness of their hope as they waited for Jesus' return. And this is why in chapter 2, Paul can declare with certainty what he says in verse 1. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. In light of all this, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. His time spent in Thessalonica over, over three Sabbaths had not been a failure. It had borne fruit, The Spirit was at work in these new believers. Paul then gives us a bit of background in verse 2 to the circumstances surrounding his arrival in Thessalonica. This is what we see in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Acts 16 tells us that Paul and Silas had, had, they had cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl who was bringing her owners um, great fortune through fortune telling. Her owners in a crowd attacked them and stripped them of their clothes. The rulers of, of the city beat them with bundles of rods and then threw them in jail. Paul and Silas, they experienced physical suffering and social humiliation without a trial. So it's clear that they overcame a great obstacle to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. But their ability to to boldly proclaim a socially offensive message, this ability came not from themselves, but from God. The manner of their message matched the content of their message. The gospel centers on God-reliance rather than self-reliance. Reliance on what God has accomplished in Christ and trusting in Christ's righteousness. Paul's dependence was on the living, the true, and the omnipotent God. Now now notice that, that Paul has already mentioned twice in two verses 
that the Thessalonians know certain facts. They, they know his time there wasn't in vain. They know that he boldly preached the gospel despite opposition. So what we are beginning to see is that Paul's primary intent in this section of his letter is to defend his conduct. Accusations were being lobbed at him, likely by the Jews in, in the city. So he is calling the Thessalonians to remember how he acted towards them. We see this in action again in verse 3. You know, Paul and Silas, we declared the gospel to you boldly. What was the reason for this in verse 3? For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The gospel is not only a message of good news, but it is also a call, an appeal to respond. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we urge you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As Paul exhorted people to respond to the saving message of the gospel, his motives were pure. His message was one of absolute truth, and he had no need to trick them into believing. But what gives him the greatest boldness is what we see in verse 4. And this gets into what I see as the heart of our passage. Look with me at verse 4. Just, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. God himself had, had chosen, tested, approved, and commissioned Paul to be a herald of the gospel. A herald has one job, to deliver, simply deliver the message entrusted to them. The herald doesn't change the message to win the approval of his hearers. Imagine if, if a waiter, while they were delivering a dish, they add their own spice mix or their own garnishes to the dish before they deliver it. No, the waiter simply delivers what has been entrusted to him. What the recipients think of the message is not on Paul. He is not seeking their approval. The fundamental motivation for Paul and his, and his missionary band was to please God. God had entrusted them with the gospel. This divine appointment gave them boldness in the face of opposition and persecution. And they were bold despite the cost because their singular objective was to please God the God who had approved of them and entrusted them with his life-saving message. Those who seek to please God shape their lives around what he desires. And one of God's desires was for people to be saved and for them to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so Paul confidently preached the message of free salvation in Christ with the power that comes from a heavenly commissioning. As we know, all, all consuming desires, they, they influence and they dictate how people will act. A father in a slum will, will steal to feed his family. 
People who want to join the special forces, they endure tortuous physical and mental conditioning so they can serve their country. And a God-pleaser will declare the gospel despite the physical or social cost. And as we get to our next point, this overarching desire causes them to act in another sacrificial way. God-pleasers will love God's family selflessly. In verse 5, Paul continues with the defense of his conduct. And what we'll see in verses 5 to 9 is a contrast between a desire for selfish gain and Paul's sacrificial, other-centered love. Look with me at verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Paul not only points to the Thessalonians' knowledge, but he now calls God to the witness stand. So with the Thessalonians and God, their their blameless character now becomes an established fact. They did not come with flattery, with, with manipulation. They did not dish out insincere compliments for their own gain. They did not come with, with greedy hearts hoping to get some reward for their smooth words. We see their character again in the first half of verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. They were not looking for cheering, adoring crowds who would be spellbound by their silver tongues. What they they wanted more than anything was to please God, not people. They wanted the glory to go to God for saving sinners. Like John the Baptist, Paul would have said, he must increase and I must decrease. So we just saw how Paul and his, <clears throat> sorry, and his missionary band were not. They were not glory-hungry, greedy flatterers. And now we will see the positive side of Paul's conduct starting in the first half of verse, second half of verse 6. Now in, in most of our Bibles, um, it looks a bit different um, where we're starting. But I think if we start in the first, second half of verse 6, it fits better as a complete thought with verse 7. So look with me there. It says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul came with tremendous authority as an apostle. He had been personally commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel of God. He could insist on being financially maintained by his new converts. He could make the weight of his authority felt. We've all felt the the, the imposing, the towering presence of authority when we stood in the shadow of of a school principal or, or a parent or an employer. But Paul was not like this. He didn't throw his weight around. He was gentle, gentle like a nursing mother. I wonder, have, have you ever watched a nursing mother with her own children? You know, she, she holds her baby close. She supports his tiny head. She caresses her hair. She gazes deeply into his eyes. 
Paul uses the, the tenderest image he can to represent his relationship with the Thessalonians, to represent, the, to paint them a picture of a pastor with his people. Listen to what Charles Wanamaker uh, says to highlight this, this passage. He says, certainly no passage in the whole, in the whole of the Pauline corpus employs such deeply effective language in describing Paul's relation with his converts. His deep love for them spills over into verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, because of our great love for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The verse begins and ends with warm affection. Love for others is displayed in in caring for their soul, in preaching the life-saving message of the gospel. But it is also expressed in, in giving of one's own soul for the sake of another. Not just part of one's life and when it's convenient, but the soul, the whole person given for another. That's what we see in verse 9 as we bring this section to a close. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Preaching the gospel is no easy task. Add to that many hours of exhausting manual labor to support himself. This is Paul's response to those who would accuse him of selfish glory seeking. Don't don't you see the ardent love I have for you, my spiritual family? Don't you see that I've I've given my days and my nights for you? I have I've calloused hands for, for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've I've spent my life on your behalf, my spiritual children. And I do this because of an all-consuming, life-constraining desire to please God. Now, our our picture of the God-pleaser is almost filled out. God pleasers, they proclaim the gospel confidently. We just saw that they love God's family selflessly. And lastly, we'll see that they walk in holiness expectantly. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says that you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Again, calling the Thessalonians as witness and God as witness. So in in short, as we've already seen, the missionaries' conduct was above reproach. They could not be charged with any wrong. The Thessalonians, they could testify to what they could have seen in in Paul and Silas. And God could vouch for what was unseen because he tests their hearts. This holy conduct of Paul and Silas is, is further explained with another familial image in the final verses of our passage today. So look with me at verses 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In Paul's time, the, the father had absolute authority in his home. Listen to what Aristotle, the, the ancient Greek philosopher, says about the father during this time. He says, The father is a kind of God to his children, a full head and shoulders above them, and rightly so, for the father is a king. The father could demand complete obedience from his children. He was the teacher of, of moral values in the home. But is, is this what Paul is getting at when he's using the image of, of a father? Was he playing both good cop and bad cop, the nurturing mother and the domineering father? No, instead, Paul uses this image to focus on the responsibility of the father in the moral well-being of his children. The children know from an early age what is expected of them by the father. This is done through, through exhortation and encouragement, a persuasion of the children to live in a certain way. There will be occasions when it is necessary to, to charge, to insist, and even require that children behave and think rightly. All of this done with a fatherly concern. So for Paul's spiritual children, he did not hesitate to urge his new converts to the highest purpose in the Christian life, to live in a manner worthy of God. This is the norm of the Christian life. We see this in Paul's letter to other churches that he started. He writes to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To the church in Philippi, he writes in, in, at the end of chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to the, and to the Colossians, in his opening prayer, he prays for them to have knowledge and wisdom so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. From day one, Paul calls them to live to the highest standard of morality, of, of holiness in existence. Only this type of life is fitting for the people of God's kingdom. The kingdom both present now in the Thessalonians as they lived under Christ's rule, but also the glorious kingdom that would be in the future completed at Christ's return. Paul's blameless conduct and his, his wholehearted devotion to God, his, his own striving for holiness, led him to urge others to the same manner of life. At Jesus' return, Christians will enjoy all the blessings of the kingdom and will participate in God's glory. A life pleasing to God now looks ahead to Christ's return. Now, we might be tempted to think of, of Paul as the example to follow. But to do so would completely miss the point and Paul's point. He doesn't want the glory to go to himself. He wants the glory to go to Christ. He says, imitate me 
as I imitate Christ. Paul wants his listeners to see and follow Christ, the ultimate God-pleaser. At Jesus' baptism, in, in, in a beautiful picture of, of the Trinity, we see the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then the Father pronounces, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He was empowered by the Spirit to proclaim the kingdom of God, boldly declaring the message of the gospel in the face of opposition and rejection. He did not mince his words when calling sinners to repentance and holiness. Jesus is the only holy, righteous, and blameless man in all of history. He is the only one who is completely devoted to pleasing God. In John 14, we read that he did as the Father commanded him so that the world would know that he loved the Father. And he went, he went to the cross for the future joy that was set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame. In love, the gentle and lowly Lamb of God gave his blood as the great shepherd of the sheep. He gave his life, all of his life, to pay for the sins of his people. And he was raised to life and given the name above all names so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus Christ shows us what it means to live a life pleasing to God. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, you are not yet a God-pleaser. You are a people-pleaser. And as we saw earlier, you're ultimately a self-pleaser. Now, you might say, you know, that's, that's, a, bit, that's a bit harsh. I, I care for my family and, and my friends. You know, I'm, I'm that nursing mother or, or responsible father that we saw in the passage. It's not really all about, about me. But the thing is, your, your, your altruism, as, as, as noble as it is, falls short of what God requires from his creation. Apart from a life completely devoted to him, selflessness and, and kindness don't count for anything in his eyes. They do not balance the scales of, of justice when he considers the rest of your sinful deeds and your thoughts. Anything other than wholehearted love and obedience to God is a sin. And the punishment for even a single sin is eternal separation from God in hell. What's more, you aren't able to be a God-pleaser on your own. Each one of us, including me and you, from birth, we want nothing to do with God. Pleasing him is, is, is the farthest thing in our minds. So what this means is that you are unable to, to drum up enough love for God or, or, or will yourself to enough obedience or, or conjure up belief in him. You aren't able to save yourself from the just punishment that awaits you. But the gospel of God, the good news, what, what Paul preached and what you are hearing 
this morning is that Jesus has taken the punishment for sinners. He lived the perfect life, the God-pleasing life that you never could. He died the death that you deserved. Is this not good news for our weary souls? And we pray, we pray for you as, as we did in our pre-service prayer that God would grant you the gift of faith to believe in Christ's death on the cross for sinners. And we pray that he would grant you repentance, turning to serve yourself and turning to please him alone for your joy and for your salvation. And lastly, for, for my beloved family in, in Christ, my, my brothers and sisters, my, my spiritual fathers and mothers in the Lord. Now, I was, th- I was thinking, jo- Joanne and I have been at this church for, for almost two years. And we can say that, that you have become so very dear to us. We, we, we love being among you. We, we enjoy eating and, and laughing with you, uh, praying and, and, and singing with you, and just hearing all the ways that, that you are encouraged by God's faithfulness. We, we are so grateful that, that you are the local church that God has brought us to as we wait for heaven together. And I want to, I want to end our time by thinking about how we can love one another selflessly. I'm not just talking about about practical service or encouraging words. I think think we already excel in this. And what I want to hone in on, I I think we already do this quite well, but we need to continue to cultivate it as as we grow together as, as a church. I want to focus specifically on love expressed in sharing your own soul. When you, sh- when you share your soul, you, you open the door for someone to see what is inside. You, you show them, they're going to see the, the, the dirty laundry that you that you've shoved to the corner, the, 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 the little dust bunnies that you forgot to clean when you're vacuuming. You share, you share your true feelings, you share your joys and your passions. And you also share your fears, your longings and your struggles. It, it can be an intimidating idea if, if, if you haven't done this before. You know, some of, us, some of us grew up in cultures where this was discouraged. But where, where the gospel thrives, fellow Christians, they share their own souls. The, the gospel creates an, an affection, a, a tenderness towards other believers who, who might have nothing else in common other than the cross of Christ. And this, this is not just for the emotional, emotional ones among us. It's for all of us. The gospel is about God giving himself to us, giving himself to us in Christ and his spirit. And we look forward to an even fuller reality of this in the new heavens and the new earth. So what better way is there to, to reflect the gospel of grace, the gospel of free grace, than to give of ourselves freely to one another. To be authentic, to be real. No no airbrushing of of our faults or our weaknesses. So ask yourself, am am I doing this with with anyone? If if not, take, take the first step of initiating love 
and find someone to share your soul with. And if you're already doing this with, with someone, consider inviting someone into this, this sacred and precious gift that we have of biblical fellowship with one another. Join, join a tag and, and, and build the body up in love as there is a mutual sharing of souls. Let us, let us continue to strive for this kind of, of gospel-centered, God-pleasing love, loving as God has freely loved us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we say with, with Paul, um, whether we are um, home with Christ or away from the body as we are now, we make it our aim to please God. Father, we want, we want to please you. We want to live in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. We, we want our, our, our thoughts, our, our, our wills, our affections to be centered on what brings you glory and what brings you joy. We pray that you would empower us, you would fill us by your spirit to do so every day. We want our church, we want each one of us to, to build each other up in love and grow up into the head who is Christ. We pray this um, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.